Howdy hi everybody. Um, pretty sure I just breached the sound already with that. Let's try that again. Howdy ho everybody. And again, sorry for your ears. Um, so, some terrible news in, you know, the sort of film industry this week. Uh, literally yesterday, I think it was. I'm recording this on a Friday. Um, so yesterday being Thursday, if you know how calendars and dates and stuff work um i wasn't sure what film i was gonna do for this coming monday um the 30th of may i believe but uh yeah yesterday's news pretty much um made me decide to go for goodfellas because of course yesterday unfortunately uh we lost ray liotta the great ray liotta um, one of those actors that is always an absolute winner in anything they've done, you know, um, I think the first thing I ever noticed Ray Liotta, uh, like, you know, acting was he did the, he did Tommy Vissetti's voice in Grand Theft Auto Vice City. Um, and I used to play that around a friend of mine's house when I was way too young to be playing a GTA game. But, you know, that was the first sort of, like, proper story-driven game that I, like, really sort of got obsessed with as a child. Um, and because Ray Liotta has such a distinct voice, you know, he's very unique with his... Although he is, you know, like, Italian-American Jimmy! And all of that, as as you'll see on Goodfellas when you watch it, he loves to shout, Jimmy! And Karen! That was all the money we had! Anyway, I'm going to stop doing these knockoff um, Raylo impressions. The point was, the point I was making, he's one of those actors, you know, like Christopher Walken or um, Michael Caine, that he's got such a distinct voice that as soon as I saw him in something, I was like, oh, that's Tommy Vassetti. That's definitely Tommy Vassetti. Um... And yeah, anything else he's in, he's, he's amazing. He's phenomenal in Goodfellas, but I'm going to go through that in a minute. Um, just like this, the range that this dude has to go through in this film. Unbelievable. Um, but even sort of like lesser known gems like Killing Them Softly with, with Brad Pitt, he's fantastic in that. He's hilarious in Wild Hogs, which um, I think is was like a critically panned comedy, but I quite enjoy it, I won't lie. He's great in that. Um even his cameo in Modern Family, where he played himself, was was great. Um, he's had such such a good career, um, and although he may not be, you know, like the biggest name, Hannibal. How did I forget about him in Hannibal? Spoiler alert: He's the guy who gets the top of his head taken off and then fed his own brain. Oh my God! What a performer! What a career! What a guy! the fuck is that i think a sorry side i think a bird has shat through my window and onto my blind <laughs> i'm gonna clean that up in a bit um sorry back to ray Leo. what what a career what a guy um you know i'm just having a quick scroll through his imdb to see if there's any like Real, real gems I've forgotten about. Um, 
but he's he's one of those actors that never disappoints. You know, sometimes you see some people in something and you're like, yeah, you're pretty good in that, but you're not so good in something else. Rayo Lyota was always great, always great. And, you know, didn't didn't necessarily have like a, a shining leading man career, but that that's not that's not a bad thing at all. Some of the best actors on the planet are those ones that are normally doing like the sort of side parts, the supporting roles and everything. Um, so anyway, my um, my love to uh, his family, not that they'll ever listen to this, but you know, his friends and family, I hope they're okay. I hope the grieving process isn't too hard. Um, but if you've never checked out a lot of Ray Lodes' work, I would recommend it. He is fantastic. Um, so without further ado, let's uh, let's get into Goodfellas. Um, this pod might run a little bit long. It's a two and a half hour movie, and I've just rambled on for five minutes about how much I love Ray Liotta. Um So rest in peace, Ray Liotta, and uh, let's get this show on the road, shall we? Oh, also as well, I know I'm doing another Scorsese movie pretty hot on the heels of um, doing Taxi Driver. I was going to leave a longer space than that, but, you know, as soon as that news came through yesterday, I was like, I have to do a, a Ray Liotta movie. Um, and, you know, Goodfellas is probably the best movie almost anybody in it or involved with it has ever made. So, of course, I have to do Goodfellas. If you haven't seen Goodfellas and you're just going to, like, listen to this podcast... And think, yeah, I might watch Goodfellas later. Normally on these podcasts, I would say, yeah, that's fine. If you're not too bothered by, about spoilers, listen to this podcast. Then go back and watch the film. On this one, I say no. Switch this podcast off right now. Go watch Goodfellas. You won't be disappointed. I don't know where you can stream it. I have it on Divida because, as I've said on other pods, I am a nerd. And I like material possessions more than streaming. But find a way to watch it is hands down one of the best movies ever made. And if you disagree with that, you're wrong. I'm sorry, I know opinions and movies and stuff are all like arbitrary, but you're wrong if you don't think this movie is at least top 10 movies, best movies ever made. You're wrong. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. As Dr. Cox from Scrubs would say, wrong, 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 you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. Sorry, I had to really commit to that um, that quote and that impression because you're wrong. Anyway, it has been seven minutes of ramble. Let's get into the pod. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Ah, what an opening line for the narration. So again, as you have definitely heard on previous pods, there's nothing more important than a strong opening sequence, right? So to quickly scuttle on through this one, you got the opening credits coming up and there they whiz across the screen to the sound of like cars passing by. So straight away you have, you know, motor movement in your head. So then when we open on the car sort of speeding down the highway, because we're in America, we're in New York, it's a highway. Um, I'm going to breach this microphone a lot on this podcast, I can tell. So if it hurts your ears, eh, you'll get over it. Um, yeah, so we, we see the car speeding along and then cut to like a nice shot um, looking through the windscreen of my boy Ray Liotta driving Robert De Niro to his right in the passenger side and then Joe Pesci, one of the ultimate wise guys, sat in the back of the car. Um, 
And they pull over to the side of the road because they think they might have got a flat. And then we find out that there's someone in the trunk. Why? Because they're gangsters. And we'll find out later on why he's in the trunk. But to sort of up the uh, the the suspense as to like how they're going to deal with this thing in the trunk, um, the red lights from the, uh, uh, the tail lights on the car shining red on the three guys as they stand there joe pesci's got a knife ready to pull out of of like some sort of like sheath in his jacket pocket de niro is like holding a, a baseball bat or something um and and the camera sort of slowly zooms in on them which which builds the tension as it slowly zooms in and up to them uh then they open it we see a guy in the in the trunk covered in blood joe pesci he's fucking alive pulls out his knife Stabs him a bunch. De Niro finishes him off. And then Ray Liotta, looking a little bit shell-shocked, walks over to the trunk of the car and then with the narration says, all my life I wanted to be a gangster and shuts the the hood of the car. And then we cut to, you know, flashbacks. But what an opening scene because straight away you're like, okay, well, these are three guys that are obviously relatively tight-knit. You know, they're, they're committing quite a heinous crime together. Um... So they're obviously trusting of each other. Um, it's there's a little bit of a hierarchy laid out straight away in the sense that like you know, Rayloat is driving, so he's probably a little bit further down in the pecking order because like when the when the movie opens up, De Niro is asleep in the in the front seat. Uh, he's also the one that gives Rayloat the nod to open the trunk. So it's quite clear that he's you know, sort of in charge at least. Um, Reload is a bit more in the sort of the lackey realm. Um, and then it's quite obvious as well that Pesci is a fucking lunatic because the first thing he does is pull out a knife and go, he's fucking alive and start stabbing him again. So yeah, straight away without opening seat, it's literally like a minute long. It's not very long at all, but straight away it gives you some suspense. It gives you some notes on their characters and their relationships to each other um, and sort of, really opens the door and peels back the layers as to what a day in the life of these mobsters is like. So can you ask for much more than an opening sequence than that? I think not. So the uh, opening sort of sequence after well, the opening sequence is like a kind of montage sequence just after the title credits from that first sequence with the guy in the back of the in the boot of the car. Um, and it is a little bit montage It's also got Ray Liotta narrating over it. Um, I think probably the main reason why they decided to go with a narration for this uh, film is that it's it spans like decades worth of um, Henry Hill's life, which is Ray Liotta's character being in the mob. Um, but it's also based on a book. So, you know, there's always like way more information in a book than you're ever going to be able to put into a screenplay. So it makes sense to just get rid of some of the um, exposition through narration. Anyway... Um, what Scorsese does really well in these like montage sequences is quite simple camera movements. Um, in the sense that like uh, he'll he'll decorate the shots with um, the mise en scène. Again, if you haven't listened to one of the podcasts where I've explained mise en scène, it's like you know props, scenery, uh, all the all the visuals. You know all the visual makeup. Basically, Google it if you want a better answer. I can't be bothered to explain it to you. Um, so to show off like he's talking a lot about the mobsters and stuff that uh, Henry Hill as a young child is like enamored with he really wants to join these mobsters so he's talking up how wonderful they are but if the average person watching one of these films is like well mobsters can't be amazing and cool like what's the appeal for 
becoming a criminal, like a career criminal, surely that's terrible. You've you've got to show the audience what makes these guys, like, you know, uh, admirable. So there's lots of close-ups on things like gold rings and, and bracelets and there's expensive things. And, like, when a car pulls up, uh, it will pull up r- right to the camera so that the, the camera's looking right at the front sort of bonnet thing so you can see, like, a... A big uh, emblem, or if if it's like the you know the Jaguar sort of um, statuette statuette thing at the front of the bonnet. I don't know. I'm not good with cars. Fucking sue me. I don't care. Um, but the point is, it's showing off all the sort of you know the the fancy chrome of the car and and you know whatever it might be. And then the camera will sort of either move wider to then show what's happening in the scene. So like if someone's you know shaking someone's hand it will zoom in on the gold ring sorry the shot will start actually on the gold rings of their hand as they shake someone the cam shake someone else's hand even <laughs> i'm getting ahead of myself here the camera will then zoom out and then we'll see the two characters so you know we get a we get a nice little sort of spotlight zoom in on something that accentuates the character's status or the wealth or you know something maybe important in the scene um, and then it will zoom out to give you the rest of the scene. Um, so it's really handy for a montage because it's like, here's the important information, here's the overall bit. Here's the important information, here's the overall bit. Um, if I didn't explain that well, just go back and watch the scene. And then you'd be like, oh, you know what, Luke, that made fucking sense. And I'd be like, yeah, it did. Now carry on with the podcast. Okay, thank you, bye. <laughs> just to point out a really iconic shot, sort of nearing the end of his, um, you know, uh, youth sort of narration. You know, when he's a teenager, when Henry Hill's a teenager. And um, it's just after he sets all those cars on fire as like a sort of, uh, I don't know, retaliation or intimidation um, effort for, for the mobsters, for Polly. And um, as he's running away, uh, it's just a nice wide shot of the car park. Uh, Henry's in the center frame. So Ray Liotta is in the center frame, the young kid. And it blows up behind him and his arms sort of like fly out to steady himself. And it just holds on that frame for like maybe 30 seconds, like a complete freeze frame as he wraps up a few points of the narration. Just such a good shot. You know, the the silhouette of him, the darkness all around the sort of like the the floor and the curb and then the, the bright orange lights of the explosion. Just what a beautiful shot. What cinematic beauty that is. So, like, when they introduce um, De Niro's character, Jimmy! Um, <laughs> breaking the, breaching this microphone left, right, and center. <laughs> I keep saying that. If, the, if you don't know what that means, that's when you have, um, like you may have seen anytime there's, like, a microphone recording or something, you have, like, a green sort of sound wave, and then it goes amber, and then it goes red, and red is when it's like, <sighs> which is pretty much what I keep doing when I keep, like, yelling, Jimmy! or any of this other bullshit I keep yelling um anyway that's enough about recording a podcast um so when they introduce Jimmy the narration is obviously saying um how important he is how feared he is how respected within the the mob and everything um despite the fact he's like 28 29 and um yummy and um sorry I distracted myself from my bub um, yeah, so there's Scorsese, what Scorsese does with what we would call like the uh, the staging amongst the characters is even though we've already seen Paulie be introduced uh, as like a real important prominent figure in, in the mafia, uh, even when he's walking with De Niro, Jimmy, 
<laughs> it took all my restraint not to yell Jimmy then. Um, even though he's he's like walking behind him, like he's sort of like on his coattails sort of thing. Like he's he's making sure that Jimmy's looked after. Like he gets Henry over to him to give him a drink. He's always sort of like behind him like, oh, what do you need now, Jimmy? Like not call him in like his bitch because he's still a, a respected figure. But all the staging from whenever Jimmy comes in is like everyone is in the court of Jimmy. So just like the characters sort of being around him, almost like waiting on him. Um, it's just a... It's a very simple way for the audience to subtly know that that guy's the big dog. And it just sort of, you know, echoes what the narration is saying about him, you know. So I'm pretty sure it took way too long to explain that simple point. It's just about staging and where the characters stand, basically, and how they interact. Okay, It's a bit more of a theatre thing as well, actually. There's a, one of the first great oneers in this movie. It's not as iconic as the second one so I'll talk more in more detail about the second one but I love that moment where you're moving through the uh, one of the bars and you're getting introduced to all these mobsters and like this is uh, Jimmy No Nose and this is Johnny whatever and this is Billy two times you know you see all these like you know these mobsters with all their nicknames and stuff it's just I don't know like it's just a little sprinkling that Scorsese throws in here within the, the screenplay in general, just to give you an idea about the scope of their operation, how many people are involved, what they what a few of them will do. You know, this guy's a hitman, this guy does whatever, you know. Um, it probably easily could have been ignored or like cut from the from the film or whatever, because it doesn't really focus on any of the central characters. But it's a nice little thing they throw in just to give us uh, a better idea of the scope of the operation that these these mobsters are running. Okay, so then there's there's a real brief uh, moment there where um like after the after that first one, where um Henry Hill, Ray Liotta is talking to um, Jimmy, Robert De Niro, and this other guy about uh, a score, and the guys. Um, he's the security at like this, I think it's the airport or something so he's telling them about like how they can basically like use him as an inside guy and steal it and just a comment on De Niro's acting if you listen to the Taxi Driver podcast I waxed lyrical for more or less the entire thing about how De Niro is the goat I will die on that hill don't even bother getting into dispute about that with me I won't back down I'm a stubborn guy and De Niro is the goat and you're wrong 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 anyway um but he's listening to this guy tell him the plan. And there's a big thing in, in acting. If you've ever heard of Sanford Meisner, I'll briefly explain the Meisner technique uh, is about putting your entire attention on the other person. So you don't generate any sort of like emotion artificially from within. Um, a crass sort of comparison would be like the Stanislavski method in terms of like emotional memory. Not that there's anything wrong with Stanislavski. I've trained in that. I like that method. It does have its merits. But if you're working on emotional memory, what you're doing is put the, putting the attention inside yourself. So sometimes that could inhibit an actor to not respond necessarily organically to what's in front of them because they're working on what's internal. Whereas Meisner would say one, when you're in the moment and you're doing the... Before, you, before the director says action... By all means, use Stanislavski's emotional memory to get you, you know, on at, in the fifth gear so that you're coming into the take hot, so that you're not warm, warming up as the take's rolling. But once the director says action, 
then I would say go to Meisner, which is where your entire attention is on the person opposite you or the people opposite you or whatever it is. So then you're responding organically to the things they give you. And in that moment, in that simple, simple moment, it's only like a 30 second clip, but De Niro's entire attention is on what this other person is saying. He's not even looking at him. He's looking down at the, pardon me, he's looking down at the table but you can see it in his eyes. He's listening and he's registering and the cogs are turning as to what this guy's saying. He's probably already read the script a hundred times. So he knows exactly what the other guy's lines are. But in that moment, he is listening and he is responding. And that is what separates the great, great actors from yeah the other actors, you know? Anyway, now the very next bit you see is one of the most famous parts in Goodfellas. It's Joe Pesci's funny how. How am I funny? What the fuck is so funny about me? Is this speech. And um, just before we get into it, I haven't pressed play on it yet. I remember seeing uh, Scorsese in an interview saying that, like, I think with this dialogue, um, the, what you see on the film isn't improvised, but how they got there is improvised. So... What I mean is, um, Scorsese was saying that, like, they they were improvising the scenes, and then I think it was either Ray Liotta or Joe... Oh, no, it was Joe Pesci said that when he was working in a, as a waiter uh, or something like that in a bar or a restaurant, um, he had a very similar experience. So then him and Ray Liotta improvised a few times how the, this exchange could go down, um, and then sort of settled on some actual scripted dialogue based on that improvisation and then that scripted dialogue is what we see in the final result on on screen but it's just to me that that shows like the the faith that the director has between these two actors but then also like the um uh well the chemistry yeah that was one thing um god i'm like schizophrenic at the moment with my thought patterns <laughs> i just it's like, yeah, that is a thing. No one said that to me. It just popped into my head. Um, anyway, that's not important. Sorry if I've offended anyone with schizophrenia by commenting on it so nonchalantly. But um, anyway, yeah. So it shows the... What's the word I'm looking for? Um, when they all work together as a team. <laughs> not teamwork. <laughs> oh, it doesn't matter. Basically, they all work together nicely as a team. And it shows that sort of, you know, a dynamic between all three of them where they can just hey, here's what we're going for, let's work it out, and then bam, you know, it's it's good. Oh man, I just watched that. <laughs> I just watched that sequence, it's so funny. Oh, funny how? Um, I'll tell you how it's funny. Um, again, it's... Again? I haven't spoken about it yet, so how can I say it again? Um, but the initial shot where you're, where they're, you know, they're having that exchange, the funny how, it's literally just two shots. You've got uh, one on Pesci, it's a what we call a dirty single because it's dirtied by Ray Liotta's sort of side profile and shoulder. Um, and there's also like, a, they've really like pushed everybody in, like uh, Scorsese is, or the first AD or whoever in charge of like the extras and the supporting actors has like really pushed everybody to sort of like dirty the outskirts of the frame, you know. And when I say dirty, I mean like, you know, just sort of be there as bodies filling out like the, the empty spaces. Uh, and then the other shot is the exact opposite. It's a dirty single and Ray Liotta sat at the table opposite Pesci with Pesci's sort of profile and shoulder. 
inside of the frame and then the other actors dirtied around it so the fact that there are all the other actors are dirtied around this frame really gives you the sense that pesci is um sort of tommy as his character is like really holding court you know he's got everybody's attention as he tells this story you know this funny story um and then those those camera angles and that setup doesn't change throughout then after he tells this funny story and uh ray Liotta says oh that's funny you're a funny guy and then it goes into the funny how how am i funny and all of that it's the exact same angles and it only gets broken up um as you know the waiter comes over to question him about his uh his expensive bill and everything and then the scene sort of loosens up a little bit with a few more angles but just those first two shots where you literally have a shot and a reverse because it's it's identical you know you're basically just doing a one-on-one sort of thing between these two with the other guys dated around it um them all sort of huddling around this thing really it it's so good because it also not only do you get that that sense early on like i was just saying that you know he's holding court and entertaining all these guys but then it the fact that those shots don't change as well really like echo um, how Relo's character Henry must be feeling when Joe Pesci sort of turns on him and it's like, no, tell me how I'm funny. What what the fuck is so funny about me? And really puts him on the spot because it's like he can't get away, he can't escape. He's like trapped there with this guy who he knows is a fucking lunatic in Joe Pesci. So the fact that these angles don't change it it keeps that tension there because like there's no escape for the audience either we're just there along for the ride with Ray Liotta and where we're already sort of like following him as the main protagonist you know he's the narrator we've seen him as a kid grow up into this adult be involved with the mob and everything we're there with him and we can't escape either just the same as he can't escape it's a really um intelligent interesting thing and then of course as soon as he figures out that Pesci's just winding him up then the scene breaks up and then some of the shots change so like the tension is broken in that moment so you know it it might look simplistic the fact that the crux of that scene is just done with those two shots but that's actually the brilliance of it there's so many funny bits that like are dark humor funny um like when Ray Liotta is going on a date a double date with uh, Joe Pesci and and his girlfriend and Ray Liotta is with Karen um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if you haven't seen Goodfellas and you're wondering why I keep yelling Jenny and Karen, then just watch it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm creasing myself up. Um, but those are things that Ray Liotta will shout at points throughout the film. Um, anyway, when he goes on that first double date and it's done like a kind of montagey, quick cut way, he's like hurrying her. He's like pushing her into the taxi. And then, like, pushing her out back to her doorstep. And then as soon as she's, like, 10 foot from her doorstep, he just, like, lets her fly and, like, wanders away. It's just so, like... It's funny because of how obnoxious and rude it is. And that's why it's funny. Um, But then when it goes to the the second double date where Ray Liotta stands her up, so then they're a trio, I don't know if this would have been, like, written in the script or if it would have been Scorsese suggesting it or Joe Pesci doing it, but between like mouthfuls of food joe pesci's like oh you know i'm really sorry that he not, not, that he stood you up and you know like he's eating as he's basically saying to karen like oh it's a shame that he stood you up he you know he really liked you um you know hopefully he's not been hurt or anything like that but just the fact that he's saying it between mouthfuls of food shows that he doesn't care <laughs> like he's not He's he's more concerned with finishing his food than consoling her. He's just 
paying lip service to what you should say when you try and console someone to try and make her feel better. But really, he doesn't care. He wants to eat his food. And that's hilarious to me. And I, I don't know if that would have been like a Pesci decision, a Scorsese decision, or if it was just written in the script. But that is hilarious. And then we have one of my all-time favorite one-ers. Um, this is the second one that I was mentioning before. Um, it's probably one of the most famous one-ers in cinema history. I mean, these days people would think of stuff like uh, Birdman or The Revenant, both insane Alejandro Gonzalez and Yeratu movies. But um, this is this is one of the most famous one-ers. And if you don't know what a one-er is, a one-er is when there's a shot or a sequence of shots that is done to look as if it's one continuous take, right? Um, and this one, in this particular one, I'm pretty confident it is one continuous take, but in films like Birdman or The Revenant, there'll be cuts that are sort of like hidden cuts that, you know, maybe to, without trying to sound arrogant, the untrained eye, or if you're not paying close enough attention, you won't realize that there's a cut happening, right? But, so on this one, this is when um, Henry takes Karen on a... Um, on a second date to sort of make up for standing her up. And um, they get out of the car. He hands his keys off. Well, I just punched the microphone. <laughs> uh, he hands his keys off to like a valet. There's a huge line of people across the road waiting to get into this club. Instead, they go down these stairs into sort of like a, an underground back entrance kind of thing. He's handing money to the door guy. Um, there's people, there's like bouncers throughout the corridor. He's saying hi, he's shaking hands. They go through the kitchen, he says hi to all the chefs, they grab a quick sample of some food that's left on the side, they're maneuvering around all these different people, all these all these moving parts, you know, all these different chefs and waiters running around. They get out into the the actual sort of like um you know, like uh theatre area where the the rest of the customers are and they're greeted by you know, like the um what do you call them? Not like the maitre d'. It might be the maitre d'. Um, the host. You know, the host greets them. Ah, oh, Henry, good to see you again. He slips him some money. Then a guy comes out of nowhere holding a, a table above his head with a tablecloth on it. They're like, oh, right down at the front for Henry. He takes it all the way right down to the front of the stage. Two chairs are pulled out. A waiter comes over with a lamp, puts that on there. And all the time, you know, Henry and Karen are going to it. It's such an intricate sequence. There's so many moving parts to it in the sense that like you would have all these different actors and, and stages and sort of like departments ready and waiting for like, okay, they're about to come to the kitchen bit. So kitchen staff action. And then like the kitchen staff would start moving about and it would all be time so that when they walk past this extra has got to walk past with this plate of food and this extra playing a chef has got to do X, Y, Z at this time. And, you know, like everyone in the auditorium waiting for the show to start, they they would just be sat waiting quietly and then like, okay, Henry and and Karen are coming through. So background extras start moving, you know, um, they, no they normally just yell when you're on set, they normally just yell background and then background starts moving and all the extras start moving about and, you know, pretending to talk to each other, but then just, you know, moving their mouths and not saying anything, all that sort of stuff. It's so intricate. There's so many things happening. And the fact that they execute it in a, in a water is fantastic it's such a good shot so if you didn't notice the first time you watched it or any times you watched it that it's done in one take go back and watch it it's the second date that um henry takes karen on it's about 30 minutes in oh my god 30 minutes into this podcast and i'm only 30 minutes into this movie so i'm gonna try and uh, not ramble so much anymore and just you know get through it but 
it's oh, filmmaking absolute masterpiece there's another single take moment um a little bit later there isn't you know the same sort of elaborate level um but it is a single take or a oneer and it's after um Karen uh, says that she's sort of been assaulted by the guy across the street so when they pull up uh Henry gets out of the car storms so this is when the one starts from the point he gets out of the car and starts storming across the street and he he takes the uh the butt of his gun which is the handle if you don't know what the butt of the gun is and beats the guy in the nose with it like 20 times and it's like kong 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 every single time is like you can really hear the sort of like the cold hard rattle of the like metal part of the gun you know clunk against his schnoz and i think the and then you know he, he clonks him and then he storms back across the road and then we get some cuts so but i think um the fact that scorsese does that in one take and we don't cut away from the conk 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 of him getting hit in the nose sort of reinforces the kind of brutality of it because like we can't look away from it it's there there aren't any cuts away from it he's not giving the audience any respite from this like vicious vicious act i mean yeah the guy was you know for all intents and purposes he assaulted karen so he deserves to get beat in the face but that doesn't change the fact that also what henry does is pretty vicious as well and the fact that the camera doesn't for one second show us anything other than that is um it just makes it that much more impactful and like whoa for the audience to sort of you know digest what am I going to talk about now? I'm going to talk about the setup of the shots for the uh, go home and get your fucking shine box for that scene, which is a great scene. Um, so basically, the crux of it is just to remind those who haven't seen it, sorry, to remind those who have seen it but can't remember, or fill those in who haven't seen it. Joe Pesci, uh, so Raylo to De Niro, they're already at a bar. There's a mobster down the other end of the bar who's apparently he's been away for a little while in prison. He's been doing a six-year stretch, which means he spent six years in the can, which means he spent six years in prison. Anyway, um, they're celebrating him coming out of prison and stuff, and Joe Pesci walks in, and he uh, he knows him from when Pesci was a kid, and he starts giving him shit about um, how he used to shine shoes, like that's how he used to make his money. So that's why he says, go home and get your fucking shine box. So before it actually kicks off, um, you know, they're having like, he's breaking his balls a little bit and Pesci's, he's biting, you know, he's not, uh, he's not laughing it off and having a joke. He's not enjoying the fact that he's the butt of this guy's jokes when he's breaking his balls. He's breaking his balls. So um, the whole time, the, the camera's quite tight in on this mobster guy down the other end of the bar because um you know he's the sort of provocateur but he's sort of like driving the scene in the sense that his actions are the ones that's causing the narrative to go this way so the camera's quite tight in on him but he's already laid all his cards out on the table he's given a load of bravado he's the loudest one so there's no surprise there but what scorsese does when he then flips over to pesci instead of being tight on him and mirroring the shot of the other mobster guy it starts on a wide with uh Lyota and De Niro both in frame and then as Pesci gets more and more annoyed and starts like losing his patience with this guy the camera zooming in very gradually and very slowly you know uh, which is like um, it's like him losing his patience and losing his tether 
the closer the camera gets to him. So it just sort of mirrors that. So again, just a simple shot where you got one guy, big bravado, close up on him to sort of show that. And then one other guy losing his patience more and more with the slow zoom in of the camera. Again, it's just Scorsese knowing exactly what he's doing because he is an absolute master filmmaker. Just another fantastic shot uh, in the film. There's so many throughout, but um, one where they have to dig up Billy Batts' body six months after they've buried him there. Uh, he's the guy in the trunk of the car. Um, the shot is literally just like red from you know the, the taillights or whatever in the background, but the source of the light is hidden by like a mound of dirt from where they're digging up, so we can't quite see what the light is. It's probably not taillights of a car. It is probably a spotlight that they've like put a red gel in front of it. Gels are like those, um, you know, those sort of plasticky see-through uh, colored sheets that will give uh, you know, a light a different tint. So it's probably just a spotlight with a, a red gel on it. Um, that's why it's hidden by this mound of dirt. So we've got the dirt silhouette and then the three guys digging, uh, you know, Jimmy, Henry and Tommy all digging. Um, and it's just a great shot. It's, it's again, it's really, really simple. There's not a lot happening on it, but it's just a lovely picturesque cinematic shot. There's a lot of uh, the cuts between different scenes where the, the sound will carry on um, non-diegetically, non if I can get my words out, into the next uh, next scene. So, if again, I've definitely said it on other podcasts, but if you're not sure what diegetic and non-diegetic is, uh, diegetic is when there's a source of noise within the like scene that you're viewing. So, for example, if someone's listening to music through like a radio or a stereo or you know cd player or their phone or something then we can see the source of noise whereas a soundtrack the source of noise isn't coming from what we're seeing it's you know like the characters within the scene can't hear the soundtrack you know it's it's non-diegetic so quite often there'll be the sound of you know be it the comedian at the end of that second one or i was talking about when when henry and karen go on a date or when uh, Henry and Karen are having an argument, she starts screaming, I'm sorry! And then that carries over into the next scene. Quite often it's done either to juxtapose what we're seeing. So for example, the comedian saying his one-liners, is it that his dialogue of that carries over to Henry and Tommy robbing from the airport. Um, so that sort of juxtaposes like, humor with them committing a crime you know it's just another day in the life almost like they treat the justice system and the law like a big joke or then uh you know the, the scene where um her crying carries over is the scene then where de niro and uh paulie the character paulie i can't remember the actor's name uh, but it's jimmy and paulie go into henry's um Rayleigh's like girlfriend's place so not Karen's place his girlfriend he's got a bit on the side and they go there to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with him well a two-on-one -on -one conversation with him about um like cutting that shit out and being a family man again because it's good for everybody you know there's not a hysteric you know wife and mother trying to get these guys to help her you know retain her husband essentially so her her cries and screams carrying over into that scene sort of um help keep the gravitas of their relationship breaking down be carried over into this scene so that scene in and of itself becomes a little bit more uh, high stakes and uh, important to the audience because of that diegetic sound being carried over 
Um, but yeah, it happens a lot throughout the movie in a lot of different ways with a lot of different meanings. Those are just the two that um, sprung to mind again. Um, and then again, to quickly sort of comment on the the camera work, you know, um, like I was talking about with that montage right at the start about like focusing in on like a gold ring and then zooming out. A lot of that happens throughout the film as well. Like there are a lot of like fast pacing moving scenes in this film, you know, where it'll just be like a really short scene that tells a little bit of the story and then another short scene and blah, 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 blah. Like I said, because it's a film that spans like decades worth of mob life and it's about a book, there's a lot to pack into like a two and a half hour movie. Um, so again, the use of those scenes where we focus on the important thing and then we zoom out to the wider thing, it's just a great way to like quickly sift through the important information a, without rushing, and B, without dragging and putting too much filler in there so the audience is, like, overwhelmed with stuff. Ah, I was just about to um st- <laughs> to start going into a bit of the... Again, the whole film is, like, pretty montage because, like I was just saying, you know, it moves quite quick from scene to scene to scene to scene. Um, but there's, like... Uh, Scorsese is so great at using the camera um, to, like, kind of like what I've already said, to illustrate a lot more. Like, for example, when Henry comes out of prison, big wide shot on the prison, so we establish exactly what we're looking at. You know, big gate, uh, big prison gate. He steps out of it, and then we zoom in on him because he's the important one. When he's going through the, the I think it's the, the Latonza heist, um, you know, saying like the players that are involved in that. There's a shot up of like an establishing shot of a bar and then the camera pans around and we see Henry and then it goes all the way down the the bar and there's a bunch of wise guys sat at the bar, you know, uh, regular faces that we've already seen like uh, Tommy and everything like that. So the camera's always in motion, always telling a story one way or another uh, for us. Um, uh, yeah, and then as soon as I heard that they, they were starting to mention the Latanza heist, I was like, oh, here we go. And literally, I've just seen then the scene of, of um, it's Henry's in the sh- So Ray Liotta's in the shower. He's listening to the radio, and a, one of those old school news button comes in. You're like, breaking news. It starts saying, like, the police don't know if it was $2 million, $3 million, $4 million. And then Henry's just getting more and more like, excited about the fact that his friend Jimmy has gotten away with this. He starts like slapping on the, the tile walls going, Oh, Jimmy! <laughs> like all that shit. I definitely breached the microphone then even though I moved the mic away from my mouth. But it's so good. I don't know, that quote always stays in my head. Just, Oh, Jimmy! <laughs> Anytime I meet someone called Jim or Jimmy, I have to like say that. Um, yeah, so basically, yeah, just Scorsese using camera movements and camera trickery just to you know either make what the narration is talking about more digestible for the audience or like tell a story invoke an emotion build tension it's just this entire film is just like cinema 101 of how to tell a great story that's why i wanted to say earlier there's so many cuts that are punchlines in this film Scorsese's so good at humor like I don't know if Scorsese's ever done a comedy but he would excel right so what I, what I mean by like these um these cuts are punchlines is uh there's the scene just after the heist where um 
uh, one of the guys who was involved with it comes in and he's like, yeah, I just bought this pink Cadillac, this nice car. And then Robert De Niro gives him loads of shit. Like, what did I tell you? No, nothing expensive. Don't buy anything big. We'll be in watch. Don't buy anything. I'm sorry for my fucking undoubtedly terrible, like, uh, New York accents that I'm doing throughout this podcast. But it's fun. I'm having fun. Forget about it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so he gives him shit for buying that. The next guy comes in. His wife's got this $20,000 mink coat. He gives him shit as well. Why did I tell you? Don't buy anything expensive. All this. Um, And then uh, a little bit later in that scene, he gives Henry his cut. He hands him a big water cash. He gives him his cut. He says, don't do anything that those guys did. Be smart. Do the right thing. Don't buy anything big or expensive. Henry's, yeah, 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 of course, of course. Cut to him walking into his house with a giant Christmas tree. He goes, hey, Karen, I got the most expensive tree they had. So he completely ignored Jimmy and went ahead and did what he wasn't meant to do. Uh, And there was another one earlier on, just after he gets out of prison. um, When he was in prison, he was um, getting someone to smuggle him in drugs. And then he was distributing drugs amongst other prisoners and taking a cut. Because, you know, times is tough in prison. He's got to make his money when he gets out. He has a little family meal with Paulie. Paulie takes him to the side and says, um, like, you know, no more of that shit. I don't want any more of this shit. You know, basically tells him no more drugs because it attracts too much attention. You can Too many other people involved with the mob can be brought down on drug charges even though they're not involved in it. It's just too dangerous. Forget, forget about it. So um, he goes, yeah, yeah, of course. Henry goes, yeah, of course, I won't. I won't, you know, no more drugs. It's, I'm, no more. Cut to... One of his girlfriends uh, mixing up a load of cocaine. I don't know what they... Is it mixing? When they mix the cocaine powder with like something else to bulk up the thing. She's mixing it all together. So you go straight from, no, of course, no more drugs. Cut to loads of cocaine. You know, they're doing lines. They're packing balls. Is it an eight ball when they pack a ball of cocaine together? I don't know. Um, Yeah, so basically the cuts are the punch lines. Because, you know, he's doing one thing, cut, he does the opposite. And it's, you know, it's just funny and it's humor. Um, so it's a, a way that you can use cuts to to act as punchlines. I've said it enough already. I'm just going around these cycles. Quick shout out to Samuel Jackson's almost. It would be a cameo, but he wasn't really Hollywood famous at this point. Um, but he turns up as Stax, the guitar player. I think he's in about three scenes before he gets whacked by Joe Pesci. Um, but basically, uh, Pesci shoots him in, in the head from behind, blood splatters everywhere, he falls on the floor. We then cut to one of the other mobsters who's in the house with him, watching him do it, and we hear a few gunshots happen um, off screen that Pesci's obviously doing to Stax, you know, a few more, despite the fact he's already shot him in the head. Um, and they leave, and then it cuts back to a slow-mo shot of Pesci walking away from Stax, turning around and then doing those extra gunshots that we heard off camera a minute ago. And the whole while he does it, he's got this completely like dead, emotionless expression on his face, which just sort of reinforces his character being this like psycho, this sort of like, you know, unsympathetic, just straight up sociopath. And um, and it, you know, it's all to um, some narration from Ray Liotta, you know, uh, going over sort of why uh, Stax is being whacked, whack Stax. Um, but yeah, I just like Pesci in that moment. It's really simple, but in that moment, Pesci is just embodying a pure, like, psycho. Pesci's such a good actor. He's he's fantastic. Oh, and then cue what is probably 
the best or one of the best pieces of acting you will ever, ever see from anybody is De Niro after, because, um, what's his face? Maury has been like busting De Niro's balls for ages, trying to get his cut from the from the heist, right? He was busting his balls before the heist. He wanted an advance payment. Now, since they've got the money, he's busting his balls to get his payment. But for whatever reason, De Niro's not giving it to him. Either way, cue the um, Eric Clapton, or is it Cream? Either way, sunshine of your love. That's it. That riff starts playing, and De Niro, well, Jimmy is talking to Tommy, Joe Pesci's character, at a bar, but his eye keeps drifting across to the side because he's eyeballing uh, Maury. He's eyeballing him because he's had it up to here with him and he knows that he's going to kill him soon. And there's so... All he's doing is smoking a cigarette and either looking at Tommy or eyeballing Maury. That's it. That's all he's doing. But th- under his eyes, like, you know, you can see all these cogs turning of, like, how frustrated he is with this guy, how much he, he can't stand him anymore. He's going to have to, you know, whack him in a, you know, in a bit to, like, you know, get him off his back, wipe him out kind of thing. There's so He does so, so much. And all he's doing is smoking a cigarette and looking at people. So I know that De Niro trained at, um, is it the Actors Studio in New York? Um, yeah, I believe it is, the Actors Studio. Where I know they were like Lee Strasberg heavy and Strasberg was a Stanislavski student. And I believe Meisner was... There's Meisner, was he? He might have been one of the practitioners. I'll have to fact check this, so don't quote me on this. But Sanford Meisner, who I was speaking about earlier, was either a trainee there or trained with Stanislavski with Strasbourg. And they may have developed the actor's studio themselves. And then Meisner went on to make the neighborhood playhouse where he, like, uh, sort of really honed the Meisner technique and and taught that. Uh, But either way, Strasbourg and Meisner were sort of peers in a similar period of time of like these you know you hear about like these great method acting schools in america particularly new york strasberg and meisner were like they would have been peers uh you know fact check me on that if you want i don't really care but i'm pretty sure i'm right about that um Either way, so I don't know if De Niro would have been trained in the Meisner technique, but it really harkens back to what I was talking about before with that. So he's, despite the fact he's got this inner monologue going on inside him of like, I fucking can't stand this guy, I'm going to whack this guy. He's doing, he's busting my balls, he's doing my head. Whatever his inner monologue is, he's got all that going on, but it's not being generated from inside himself. It's being generated when he eyeballs this guy and he, makes him sick to his stomach when he looks at this guy he can't stand this guy so we so all of that comes from looking at him he's not building up himself and that cuz i mean that's that's what i'm putting on that as an audience member that's my projection onto de niro's performance because he's a what de niro does why he's so good is he doesn't show you anything he just is and then it's up to you how you think he is if that doesn't make sense to you i'll try and say it in other words so like he's not showboating he's not like i'm angry now he's just being and if you interpret how he's being as angry then he's angry if you t- interpret how he's being as upset 
then he's upset, you know? He just is. So he's there, he's smoking his cigarette, he's just looking over at this guy, and all to the soundtrack of Sunshine of Your Love. It's just, oh, you don't get many better performances in anything than De Niro in that moment. Fucking brilliant. Now, I know this sounds weird to talk about a a montage about death being good, (laughs) but there is this montage, and it's set to Clapton's Layla, but it's the second half of Layla, where if you're familiar with the song, you know the one where the riff is like, but the second half of the song is where the piano kicks in. Anyway, so it's all set to that piano part of Layla, and one by one we see all these mobsters that have been involved in um the heist with jimmy being whacked because he's cutting all traces back to him and it's all in kind of like slow motion you know like a slow motion as like a garbage man tips the the garbage pail into the back of the truck and slow motion one of the bodies falls from the pail into the truck um there's a great crane shot which is exactly what it sounds like if you don't know. The camera's on the end of a crane so you can get like better aerial shots or shots from height. And it comes in from high into the back of a, you know, like those big 18-wheeler trucks or whatever. Comes down into the back and then just as it gets to the back of the doors, they open the doors. Uh, the camera moves inside the truck past all these, it's like a freezer truck. So there's like, um, like carcasses of animals and stuff hanging down. And then eventually we see Frankie Carbone. He's been hung up in there, he's all frozen, Um, there's like a slow-mo, the first one in the montage actually, is like uh, shot right at the front of a bonnet of that pink Cadillac that I was talking about earlier, and then it comes up over the top of the bonnet, and then we see the the two owners sat there behind it, covered in blood, all dead and stuff, there's just so many great, like, what, what otherwise would be like beautiful shots, but they happen to be with dead people in them, which makes them less beautiful. But with the slow-mo and with the music, it's like such an eloquent montage that in and of itself, the beautiful shots, the beautiful music, like I said, the eloquency, 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 how eloquent it is really juxtaposed the fact that it's about like death. I'm aware I'm pushing on an hour now and um, I've still got like, you know, 20, 30 minutes left of this film. But, um, the spoiler alert, the bit where um, Pesci's character gets shot, they, they set it up that they think he's going to be made, which in mafia terms is sort of like being promoted to a level where you're effectively untouchable. But it's a setup. They do it so that they can whack him as revenge for Billy Bats, who's the guy in the boot at the start of the movie. Because um, he was a made guy, so he shouldn't have been killed by Tommy and that. But So anyway, when... De Niro makes a call thinking like, oh, he's going to, you know, hear the news that the ceremony or whatever it is, however they make you, has gone well. And he calls and it's someone else on the phone says that they whacked him. And then as the bomb gets dropped and De Niro realizes his friend is dead, the camera's on a wide of him in this phone booth making that call. And then as the bomb gets dropped, it like zooms in right up close to De Niro and he like starts smashing the phone on the on the receiver you know like the way you hang it up on starts smashing it on there uh, starts breaking down crying he leaves the phone booth and then you know he's he's crying but like what i love about de niro in that moment he's not like over like i said before he doesn't oversell the fact that he's sad like sometimes when you see actors i'm not saying their performances are bad but like 
especially with guys, like they really want to break down and cry and show you how sad they are and show you how many tears they have, they have and stuff. And like, and if you can do that as an actor, like get to tears, great. It's, it, you know, it's an awesome tool to have in your, in your toolbox. But generally speaking, like guys, like men and stuff in general, society still won't really let men, you know, cry and things like there's still that social stigma and especially back then when this film is set it's set in like the 70s and the 80s men weren't allowed to cry mobsters weren't allowed to cry so what de niro does is you know if you can think if you're listening to this and you can't think of the last time you cried or if you cry quite a lot no shame in that i cry all the time i fucking cry everything you know i'm an actor i'm supposed to be able to but like the last me i you know my face contorts and like my, my lips move up like this, you know and like that's exactly sort of what de niro does like his face contorts and everything as if he is cried but then if he is gonna cry sorry but then he's sort of like trying to hold back the tears and everything he's not completely breaking down be like oh look how sad i am academy give me an oscar he's just crying how a tough guy would cry you know they don't really want to show their emotions and show that they're crying and have this big weepy breakdown it's a very subtle performance literally only just realized on this watch back that Isaiah Whitlock Jr.'s in this film as a cameo as the doctor if you guys don't know who he is by name he's the guy in the wire that goes she for ages I literally only just saw that that's all I've got to say about that just I noticed his cameo yeah, so this one's going to go a little long, but sue me. I'm near the end now, anyway. I've just had the... Why did you do that, Karen? ...scene, which is uh, <laughs> after um, he gets busted for all the coke he's been dealing, and he left like $60,000 worth of coke at the house. Karen thought the police were going to find it, so she flushes it down the toilet. So now they don't have any money. Now they're literally dirt broke. Um, But just to sort of comment on what I was talking about at the start of this uh, podcast and like why I decided to choose this film is like Ray Liotta's performance throughout this you know how a lot of people said that like uh, DiCaprio with um, Wolf of Wall Street deserved the Oscar for that movie but he ended up getting it for The Revenant Um, I can't remember who he lost to with The Wolf of Wall Street Um, might have been like Daniel Day-Lewis or something but people were saying DiCaprio deserved it because of how like how much he had to do as a performer in that film, how many emotions he had to go through. This is exactly what Ray Liotta had to do with Goodfellas like thirty years before DiCaprio did that. You know, he goes through like bravado, sort of being an intimidating person, to being the reasonable person, cajoling people. Um, to just being distressed and distraught and and panicked and it goes into like just a sort of a paranoid like all over the place he he he's scared and intimidated at, at points he's happy and jovial and and having a good time with his friends at other points literally i'm i'm not sure what emotion he doesn't cover in this film he covers every every emotion you know sorrow when he loses a friend when he loses tommy you know fear when he's being intimidated by paulie or he might get whacked or what he does everything in this film and it all of it is impeccably good 
impeccably good. He's fan-fucking-tastic in this film. He's great throughout his career. So, like, once again, I said it at the start, but once again, you know, rest in peace, Ray Liotta, a real, real gem, real gem of an actor. And it's funny that I mentioned, well, compared him to uh, DiCaprio in Wolf of Wall Street, because right at the end, um, as they're going through the courtroom scene, he properly breaks the fourth wall and goes from narration to actually, like, delivering uh, the final bit of narration directly to the camera breaking the fourth wall. Um, which really wraps up quite nicely. And then his final line is, I have to live the rest of my life like a schnook. And then cue Sid Vicious's version of My Way. So, you know, with these mobster movies and stuff, they have a lot of, like, Frank Sinatra throughout. So then to, like, really amp up the the end credits of this film with Sid Vicious going, nah, in his, like, snarl. Just a great choice of music for the for the end of the film. Um, okay, so I've rambled on for about an hour now. Again, Scorsese is top two directors for me. Um, you see the him or Tarantino, but my preference is Tino. Tino. <laughs> um, De Niro, fantastic. I can't believe I barely spoke about Pesci in this movie. Pesci is fucking so good in this movie is there anyone that can talk with as rapid fire precision as this guy like he talks a million miles an hour but you hear everything you hear every intention he he's the best person i've probably seen play a psycho without trying to amp up the fact that they're a psycho like Okay, slight tangent. I like Jared Leto as an actor most of the time, but for example, his Joker, I didn't really like because it felt like he was trying too hard to show you that he's crazy, right? With Pesci, he plays these psychotic characters very well, like in Goodfellas or Casino, for example, where he is an off-the-chain lunatic, but it's all like, he's never trying to show you that he's crazy. It's just sort of like emotional-driven, like... He'll have these like hair trigger reactions and these like temper tantrums of sorts in response to things. And he doesn't, he's not overselling the fact that he's not trying to play crazy. He's just trying to play whatever the character is, is doing or feeling or thinking at that point. He's brilliant in it. And like I said before, De Niro is the goat. You, there's not a better actor on the planet. There's never been a better actor. And like I said about Ray Liotta, he goes through so many things like he was breaking my heart at the end when he's like completely destitute and he knows that he's going to get whacked by the mob and he asks his friend Paulie if he could just help him out and he's like begging him and you see it in his eyes he he's ashamed to be doing it for him he knows he's betrayed Paulie but he's so destitute at this point that he's got no other choice but to beg him for some help he was breaking my heart watching him like deliver that scene it's just oh what a film what a film um so i'm gonna wrap up the podcast there um i've said it already but rest in peace ray Liotta. you will be missed within the film industry um and if you have listened to this entire podcast and haven't yet seen goodfellas just go back and watch it if you've already seen it and you thought oh, i'll listen to this podcast because i've already seen it but i haven't seen it recently Go back and rewatch it. If you saw it yesterday in preparation for this podcast, go back and watch it. What a film. Um, 
that's it bye everyone.